This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we don't have an interview, which is unusual for an odd-numbered episode, but there will probably be a lot following SVP in a couple months. (laughs) So there might be a little bit of a lull and then a huge burst of tons of interviews. We'll see. We also might do some other interviews soon, too. Way to keep it vague. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to commit to anything, really. But... We do have Dinosaur of the Day, Korea Ceratops, which is pretty exciting, especially if you're Korean and are looking for some national pride. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. Before we get into the news, we want to quickly thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons and other patrons who get shoutouts. This week, we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, and Jeremy. Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone. If you want to join this group of amazing people, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. We have been giving some extra content lately that you can only get as a patron. So if you're curious, go to that page, patreon.com slash I know Dino. It's full of all sorts of good stuff. Jumping right into the news, we've got a new dinosaur. Ankylosaur. Yeah, so you know it's good. Well, you (laughs) know it's good. You like dinosaurs. I do. (laughs) <laughs> They're just not my favorite. Ankylosaurs aren't. Yeah. Yeah, they should be. And thanks to Keegan for sharing this link with us. The paper about this one was written by Yella Vierzma and Randall Ermes. I think is how you say their names. They had a really good video where they both talked about the dinosaur, but they never said their own names. They just have the little thing written below their (laughs) their head. You know how they often do that? Darn. Yeah, it would have been helpful. They did say the name of the dinosaur. They both said it, which is Echinocephalus. But in the video, one of them says Echinocephalus and the other one says Echinocephalus, which is a good example of how we say that a lot of these dinosaur names aren't really meant to be pronounced They're really just written, and the pronunciation is just kind of up for interpretation. So don't be pedantic. Just say it however you feel like it. (laughs) People will know what you mean. Echinocephalus was found in the Kaiparowitz formation. And I think, I wonder if it's it's the same K-A-I in Kaiparowitz as Echinocephalus. And I've heard Kaiparowitz formation before too. And I wonder if it's the same kind of which way you pronounce that K-A-I sort of word part. But in any event, the Kaiparowitz Formation is in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Utah, and it is the most complete ankylosaurid which has ever been found there. 
Nice. In this area, a lot of dinosaur fossils have been found. Oh, yeah, a ton of them. In this one spot where they found echinocephalus, they also found a gryposaur, or, you know, a duckbill dinosaur, a turtle, and a crocodile. And they said usually when they find a dinosaur, you know, they dig it out, and that's the only thing there. But they found the gryposaur first and kept digging, and then they're like, oh, there's also a turtle. Oh, there's also a crocodile. Oh, what's this little bit of an ankylosaur sticking out? (laughs) And then ended up finding this guy, which was by far the coolest find. It's the first one that's been named. I think they said that the crocodilian is still unnamed. So maybe that'll end up being a new species too. It's hard to say. But back to echinocephalus, its skull is very ornamented. It's really cool. It's very spiky all over the place. And echina actually means thorny or spiky in Greek. So that's how it got its name. And then cephalus means head. So it's like thorny head, (laughs) basically. That's how a lot of the dinosaur names go. They're descriptive, what they found. Yeah, I always like that a little bit better than when it's just the name of a place. But then the species name, as is often the case, honors a specific individual, in this case, Randy Johnson. So it's a Johnson eye. And he's a volunteer who has worked in the fossil prep lab for quite a while at the Natural History Museum of Utah. And he was the one that prepared this specimen. And apparently it took thousands of hours to prepare, much like Zool. There were so many bones to go through and it was in such good shape that they were really careful with it. Oh, yeah. Didn't they find the bones years ago? Yes, I think they found it back in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly. But, you know, thousands of hours of preparation takes a while, Mm -hmm. especially if a volunteer is doing it. He's probably not doing it eight hours a day, although maybe he was. The fossil was found by a Bureau of Land Management paleontologist because the BLM is kind of one of the agencies responsible for Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And when he found it, Scott Richardson, the guy who found it, they found it with just the back of the skull sticking out of the dirt. And little did they know that once they dug down, they would find a beautifully preserved skull and a good portion of the dinosaur, which when reconstructed was about four meters or 13 feet long. So it's kind of a medium sized or maybe even on the smaller end for ankylosaurs, but obviously in terms of animals, still quite large. And to me, it's kind of funny because even though it's only 13 feet long ish, It's still very wide, so its body almost looks like a circle with a tail and a head sticking out of it. (laughs) Kind of like a turtle? Yeah, it looks a little bit turtle-like. A lot of the ankylosaurs have more of like an oblong sort of body, like ankylosaurus, Mm -hmm. more oval-shaped, but this one's almost as wide, but just shorter. When you look at the recreation that they made of it, because they made a really nice recreation, the thing that stood out the most to me are these two, quote-unquote, cervical half rings. And what those (laughs) basically look like are two big necklaces of connected osteoderms on the neck. Oh. Yeah, it's really interesting. Is that part of the spikiness? It's not really spiky. It's mostly just regular osteoderms, but they're fused together with like a bony you know, half ring, like they say. So it it almost looks like a bangle, like you'd wear on a wrist or something, (laughs) as if it's on the neck. (laughs) And it looks kind of funny because they recreated in the mount where all the osteoderms are, and they don't really have any skin under it, obviously. But then this kind of gives you an impression of where the skin would be, but it's just supported by little thin pieces of metal. So it's like you've got the head, and then there are these two big bangly looking necklaces and then you've got the rest of the body in between so it's like those they really stand out in the way that they recreated it sure i think it would look a little bit more like other ankylosaurs if they fleshed out the rest of the neck skin and armor and stuff 
Unfortunately, they only found one specimen when they dug it up. Not surprisingly, that's usually the case with dinosaurs. But a couple of the ones lately that they've found, we've talked about how there was another one nearby and then they could kind of combine some bones and learn a little bit more about the dinosaur. This one was 76 million years old, which puts it in the Campanian in the late Cretaceous. So pretty late for a dinosaur as you'd expect for an ankylosaurid. And they found a lot of the dinosaur. They found a complete-ish skull, including the jaws. And I say complete-ish because in the video, they both refer to it as a nearly complete skull. But then in the paper, they say a complete skull. <laughs> oh, interesting. I think it's because the only parts that are missing are like the ornamentation, horns mm -hmm. and stuff. And technically speaking, that's probably not part of the skull. That's more of like the skin or something weird in between. But it is really well preserved. It's almost like Zool, where you can see a lot of detail of, of its face. Is it as good as the Borealopelta? It's not quite that good, because it doesn't have that whole mummified thing going on where it has the soft tissue preserved as well. Mm. It's, just, it's still just bone. But since it had so much bone on its head, <laughs> it looks pretty great. And a lot of it's covered in these small bony cones and pyramids they describe them as which are really interesting looking, and it gives it a much spikier look than most ankylosaur heads. Usually they're kind of more rounded osteoderms around the head, but this one it's like really spiky. It's got like little rows of spikes above the eyes and kind of down the sides of its head and a little bit in the front too. Do you think that's ornamentation or defense? I think it's ornamentation because it's a little bit spiky, but it's not spiky enough because the spikes are still probably only like a centimeter high or something like that. Mm -hmm. So anything big that could get through any reasonable amount of armor isn't going to be thrown off by a spike that size. It's the kind of thing that would deter, like, you know, a small animal. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And they refer to it as ornamentation, so I'm just sticking with them. Could it ever be possible, like, what if they needed to bash into trees or something to get their food? Oh, yeah, like in uh, the most recent Jurassic World where they're running through the forest and everything's just kind of falling over? Or do you mean, like, more like a woodpecker? I guess either way could apply because then could that give them some protection against that <laughs> maybe it has a beak and it doesn't have any hands and i don't think its tongue was very useful so i wouldn't really expect it to be going for insects and trees okay but yeah so it's probably ornamental it's a good question though like what could you use these little spiky things on your head for mm -hmm. yeah maybe like if there was some kind of small animal that you wanted to keep off your head, the spikes might help a little bit or something as like a defense mechanism. A little avian dinosaur getting in your way. Yeah. You can shoo it off with your spiky cheeks. Or some dragonflies. I guess. <laughs> so the parts that are broken off are basically the squamosal horns, if you're familiar with ankylosaurs. That's the top back horn kind of on the back of the head, which usually stand out quite a bit on ankylosaurs. That's the kind of thing you see on uh, like Draco Rex or Stygimoloch too, right? A little bit, yeah. I think those are also squamosals. In this one, they actually kind of stick, I think they almost said down. They said ventrally, which is weird because a lot of times they stick almost up, mm -hmm. but these are a lot more kind of swept back. And that's what they describe the ones behind the eyes as, which are a little bit lower. They also found, in addition to a really well-preserved skull, part of the front legs, part of the shoulders, and a good portion of the back legs too which is pretty great for an ankylosaur. A lot of times it's just the skull and sometimes the club. They also found most of the spine, parts of the neck, back, sacrum, and tail, as well as the tail club, which has the two big fused knobs on it, as well as the whole handle, that fused vertebrae 
almost like a bat <laughs> that extends from the club back towards the body. And lots of osteoderms all over the place, a bunch of ribs, and the two cervical half rings that I described earlier. So quite a bit of the dinosaur, really, they found. They think it got buried in a crevasse splay, too, which is that kind of thing that happens when there's a river and one of the banks sort of bursts and then it floods the nearby area and buries a whole bunch of stuff. But no soft tissues. No, so it wasn't. It didn't create a concretion or anything fancy like that around itself to preserve really amazingly. But I think that is probably why there still are ribs and legs and things like that, mm -hmm. because it would just be so tempting to eat all that if you're a predator or a scavenger nearby. But if it got buried immediately and that's how it died, then you have a much better chance at more of the body fossilizing. Right. The author's humble brag by saying it's the the most complete ankylosaurid from the late Cretaceous of southern Laramidia. Hey, if you can stake a claim. <laughs> yes, and it is pretty well preserved and there's a lot of it, but I think it's funny that they said southern Laramidia sure. because they don't usually break it down that way. But if they didn't specify southern, it definitely wouldn't have the title because they're defining southern Laramidia as kind of the dividing line between Wyoming and Utah. And if you go north then you end up getting near Zool and a lot of these other ankylosaurs, which are better preserved. At least this wasn't them. published last year. <laughs> yeah, because they would have said the best one in Laramidia and then well, if it was before. immediately. But also just the fact that there were two great finds last year. Oh, true. Yeah. yeah spread them out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and for people who aren't familiar, Laramidia starts all the way up basically at Juneau, Alaska, and goes almost all the way down to Guatemala. So it's a very long stretch of land, and it's basically all of Western North America. And it kind of changes a little bit over time because as sea level rises and falls, there was this interior seaway that separated North America. And so it could shift a little bit here and there. But yeah, generally Utah is the farthest east part. And then a little bit of western Montana and Alberta are in this Laramidia chunk. And that's where a lot of good dinosaurs come from. So it's got a lot of competition. <laughs> they think that Echinocephalus is closely related to Nodocephalosaurus from New Mexico. And it's also an ankylosaurid. And I wonder if that's why they did the whole cephalus part, like with the cephalosaurus. Mm, could be. And then there's also some other Asian ankylosaurs like Minotaurosaurus and Tarkia, which oh, are both closely related. Good names, too. They are. Minotaurosaurus is a cool one, too. Its squamosals go like straight up. <laughs> like a minotaur. Exactly. Like a bull, you know, the horns. And they reassert in their paper that they think they're closely related, more closely related to these Asian ankylosaurs because there was a connection between Laramidia and Asia. And they think that was sort of generating some of these connections and close relationships. It's weird, though, that it's more closely related to some of the Asian ones than some from northern Laramidia, because when you go over to Asia, they usually say that you go up through Alaska and then down through Russia. So it's it seems like the ones on the northern end of Laramidia would be closer related, but maybe there was some other obstruction because like, there are mountains and rivers and things, I guess, maybe in the way. I don't know. It's kind of strange. If you want to see Echinocephalus, it's already on display at the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City, which is a great museum to go to anyway, <laughs> but I definitely recommend going. They put it kind of down amongst a bunch 
of the other dinosaurs. I think it's sort of in front of the wall of Ceratopsian skulls, if I could tell. They show a little bit of a time-lapse video of where they set it up, and I think that's where it's at. Gotta keep it separate from the Ceratopsians. <laughs> I guess so. And then we'll also post the video of the researchers talking about it so you can see them handle it and point out some of the features. But it's a really cool dinosaur. It's nice to have another good ankylosaur find in the mix, right? Yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's not as good as some sauropod finds, but it's good. You get sauropod finds all the time. There's so many more sauropods than ankylosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Got a quick announcement we just want to make that Dr. Rebecca Hunt Foster is going to be the new paleontologist at Dinosaur National Monument starting this August. Nice. And I couldn't find any formal announcements, and I think she actually posted about this a while ago, but now I know the start date. Yeah. It's been <laughs> almost a year since they since Dan Schur retired, right? A year already? I think so, because I think it was around last SVP. Oh, maybe they had to find the right person. That's true. I think they said she's been working there for quite a while. I don't think it was Dinosaur National Monument. I think it's other places nearby. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, because she and her family had to move to Vernal <laughs> yeah. or Jensen. I don't know which one they decided. Well, it sounds of. like it's a lot nicer now than it was when Dan moved there back in the day and they barely had running water. <laughs> yeah. Over in Connecticut, Nicholas G. McDonald, who's a recent retired geology instructor and author of many articles and two dinosaur books, donated a really large collection of fossils and specimens to the Bruce Museum in Greenwich, Connecticut. The collection includes dinosaur footprints and teeth, fish, plants, coprolites, and invertebrates, and many have not yet been studied, so that's pretty cool. A lot of them are from the end of the Triassic and beginning of the Jurassic, you know, around the rise of the dinosaurs. And the museum science gallery is being renovated, so a lot of the fossils are going to be on display there. Nice. Got a good inflatable dinosaur story. So in Griffin, Indiana, statewide fireworks, they lost and got back their 30-foot inflatable dinosaur. The dinosaur's name is Dynomite. Yeah. It went missing on July 3rd, and then Stateline Fireworks posted on Facebook asking for information, and they said no questions asked. And then a few days later, the dinosaur was returned, but it was deflated, and the store got a phone call telling them to check out their back door. And then there's a cardboard sign that said, sorry, mom and dad, I wanted to go watch the fireworks show on the riverfront. <laughs> Interesting. It's yeah. nice that it got returned, at least. Yeah. I wonder if the people who stole it were like, what are we going to do with a 30-foot inflatable dinosaur? Now that, yeah, they're on the lookout. Too. Yeah. How are you going to... You, you can't hide it. You can't put it inside. Oh, no. Anytime you inflate it, people are going to be like, oh, it's that dinosaur somebody stole. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see who has it. Yeah, I wonder if they did anything with it. Yeah, it's a good question. I think if I were going to make a dinosaur sculpture now, I would make it so large that you couldn't fit it inside a house. That seems like the best anti-theft deterrent because all the ones that get stolen are always the little ones. Mm -hmm. These huge ones. What are you going to do with that? I don't know. You really want to put them <laughs> in the front yard? <laughs> oh, of our house? Yeah. Yeah. But it would be too big to fit inside so that no one would steal it. I guess so. Next, thanks to Dr. Alex Hastings, who shared this one with us. So on July 27th to 28th, coming up very soon, the Virginia Museum of Natural History in Martinsville, Virginia is having a two-day dino festival. There will be a dinosaur maze, a new sauropod footprint that was found this summer in Wyoming on display, a lot of real dinosaur bones, and then on Saturday the 28th, there's going to be two talks, one by Dr. Brooke Heyer, who was one of the DIG coordinators, and one by Dr. Hastings about his research and outreach project, Comic Books and Dinosaurs, which we talked to him about in oh, yeah. episode 167. Nice. Yeah. It's 
great project. So the festival's open from 11 to 7 on Friday the 27th and then 9 to 3 on Saturday the 28th. Check it out if you're in the area. Speaking of mazes, in York in the UK, (laughs) York Maze has opened for the summer and apparently they do a different theme every year. And this year they wanted to commemorate the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park. Oh, good choice. Yeah. So they carve 15 acres of maze fields into the maze. They do this every year. And the Jurassic Maze has this T-Rex and Triceratops that look (laughs) like they're about to fight. Oh, so that one maze isn't 15 acres. No, I think it is. It's really large. Oh, really? Wow. That's a huge maze. Mm -hmm. I hope that the aisles are wide and it's not like a narrow maze (laughs) because that could be very intricate. You'd be lost in there for like a day. True. (laughs) I wasn't really looking at what the maze part looked like. I was just looking at that. They have the overview picture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't imagine how you even put that together. But there's also, oh, when you're in the maze, there's people in dinosaur costumes walking around. It looks like the Velociraptor kind. Not the inflatable kind, but the really heavy kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. When I was a kid in Wisconsin, they would, after the whole harvest of, I don't know, corn or something, they would smash down sections of the corn mm-hmm. and then make mazes out of it around Halloween time. Not fun. It was really cool. I think this is probably the same kind of thing. They probably harvested whatever they grew there for the year and now smash down a chunk of it before you tear out the rest of the stuff. Oh, so you harvested in the spring? Could be. There are plants that you harvest in this time of year, yeah. Cool. Well, the maze is open until the end of September. That's cool. Or they could just make so much money off of their mazes that they don't even have to grow anything. It's just like grass. Who knows? (laughs) All right, so this next one. I knew this would happen when we talked about it in last week's episode because we couldn't figure out the correct way to pronounce the orange dinosaur in Massachusetts. And so I asked if there's any listeners from the area to help us out. And we got two people who responded. So thank you. We've got Anthony and Derek to thank for this one. So we've got two explanations on how to pronounce the orange T-Rex that's on Route 1 in the Boston area. And now I'm feeling a lot of pressure, but I think it's Saugus. (laughs) Yeah. Because I said it's like August without the T. As one of the explanations, or you say it as if the U were a W. Saw Saugus. with Gus at the yeah. end. Yeah. Okay. So Saugus, the Saugus dinosaur in Massachusetts. <laughs> so now we know. Yes. Wherever in Massachusetts, we'll be able to ask local people for directions. Yeah. And thank you both. I love that we can ask these kinds of questions <laughs> and get answers. <laughs> yes. Next, thanks to Chris, who shared this one with us via Twitter. BBC4 program had a Beach Live Jurassic Coast reveal three-part series that featured historian Dan Snow and natural history experts Lucy Cook and Niall Strassen, as well as scientists Dr. Anjana Quattaford talking about the geological makeup of the Jurassic Coast in the UK. Hmm. And apparently the best time to go fossil collecting there is in the winter. We might have talked about that, but then I hadn't really thought about it before. Is that when it rains? Yeah. And things are exposed, but makes sense. it must be cold. Yeah. Best is a relative term yeah. here. Maybe the most likely to find fossils, but not the most likely time to have a good time. Yes. <laughs> You're not there to enjoy the beach. Yeah. But you can watch the series online for free for the next few weeks. It's not all about dinosaurs, but it's still really cool to hear about the area. Yeah, that is nice. BBC Four. How many BBC channels are there? I have no idea. <laughs> I think the only one we get in the U.S. is BBC America, right? And it's like six months delayed and Mm -hmm. misses out on a lot of the stuff you want to see. (laughs) 
And next, thanks to Sarah who shared this one with us via Facebook. So you can apparently buy a half ounce pure silver colored Canadian dinosaur coin featuring Edmontonia. Mm. Yeah. And I think this came out. Yeah, it came out in 2016. So it's not really new, but it's cool that you can do this. So the coin's silver, but the dinosaur is colored red and brown and yellow. So it really stands out. Yeah, it was designed by Julius Sotionyu hopefully I pronounced that right, and reviewed for scientific accuracy by a paleontologist at the Royal Tyrrell. Oh, cool. Yeah. It costs about 45 Canadian dollars, but it's currently awaiting stock, so you might have to check back every once in a while. And they also have other, but could potentially be a lot more expensive coins. I think some of them are you can pay thousands of dollars for. Jeez. But they've got Ornithomimus, Gorgosaurus, T-Rex, and I think more. Yeah, we got three of the T-Rex ones. Not the ones they have here. Those oh, are these are, the painted ones? Yeah, these ones cost uh, like cool. 2500 Canadian dollars oh, or something geez. like that. Yeah, we did not get those. <laughs> yeah, ours were $20. Yeah. They have a program where it's like 20, they call it like $20 for a $20 coin or something like that. So you actually pay the face value of the coin. So it's a $20 silver coin and we got three of those of T-Rex. We also have a Dimetrodon one. I think someone gave us as a gift. Yeah, really cool. Although if we actually tried to use them, would anyone accept it? I think they would. Mm. Canada has a ton of these coins. They make more commemorative coins than I think anywhere else. <laughs> I was on their mailing list briefly after we bought those T-Rex ones. Mm-hmm. I was just constantly getting like inundated. It's like, oh, it's like Indy 500 season. Here's one with a race car yeah. on it. And, like just nonstop. Maple well, leaves, all sorts of maple leaf, everything all the time. The website has a ton of options. Yeah. So. They do a lot in Australia too. Maybe it's just one of those Commonwealth kind of things to do (laughs) the u.s i noticed i was going through our quarters the other day and there are a ton of different ones than i remembered i suppose yeah because they do sets for every state Mm -hmm. so that everything's a multiple of 50 so it adds up quickly yeah (laughs) that's true those coins are really nice though i really like them the dinosaur ones Mm -hmm. yeah we like most dinosaur things that's yeah good point And real quickly, I want to give an update on a sort of game. I played the game, I guess, called Blue on Oculus, and it's blue after the Velociraptor. Do you play as blue? No, you don't really play at all. In fact, it's kind of motion sickness inducing because you can't even really move around in the space. Mm. You're just sort of on a camera that follows an animation and you can still look around and things like that. It's like a short film. Yes. It's like six minutes long, I think, but it's kind of cool. It starts out where Blue is chasing a baby triceratops, and I was kind of hoping that they were going to recreate the fighting dinosaurs, Oh yeah, which is that velociraptor and protoceratops that got buried in combat in Mongolia. That's so awesome. But then again, this velociraptor is way too big. Unless it's baby blue. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't. It was or like juvenile blue. full-size blue. Mm. And then also it's a baby triceratops instead of a protoceratops, so it didn't really work. And then also a pterosaur swoops in randomly in the middle of the scene and messes everything up and like goes after the baby triceratops. Oh no, that poor baby. Yeah. And that also like, for some reason, my game glitched multiple times too. So I don't know, maybe it's something with a rendering where it flipped back and forth a couple times right when the pterosaur swooped in, which really makes you all like dizzy and it's really unpleasant. But I, I wonder if they were turning the camera to look at the pterosaur or something. I don't know. It's not a great time. Are you looking around a lot? Not really. It kind of turns you, which is partly what gives you motion sickness because mm-hmm. it forces you to turn, but you're not actually turning in real life. So it, it's a disconnect between what your body's doing and what the camera's doing. So 
yeah, that's not great. Not the best VR experience that I've seen. But the second part is a little bit more fun. Blue is scavenging through the volcanic wasteland that you see in Fallen Kingdom. And then it, it stumbles upon a nest of eggs. And it's like, ooh, I think I'm going to eat one of these. And then a baryonyx runs up <laughs> right as it's about to get into it. And then for some random reason, a T-Rex shows up and roars and then leaves. And it kind of roars like towards you. Sure. So it's, it's something, I guess. But that's in a lot of these VR things. They always have T-Rexes roaring at you. It's pretty popular. Are you popular used to it now? Yeah. And it's so lost it, its effect. It really has. But it was really cool to see the baryonyx because I haven't seen the baryonyx in any other kind of VR simulation of dinosaurs, which there are several of. And the baby triceratops is also kind of cool. But it's free. So it's worth checking out, I think. I don't know when it came out. We were overseas when the movie came out, so I couldn't try it out until now. But it's pretty fun. If you're jonesing for more Jurassic World <laughs> after a month of it being released, then... Well, we've been waiting three years. Yeah. Or you could wait a little longer and then get into it. Dole it out. Yeah. We've got another three-year wait, so might as well. Watch the first part next year. Watch the second part a year later, and then the next movie will come out. There you go. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. <laughs> oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Korea Ceratops, which was a request from Philip via Patreon. So thanks. It was a basal ceratopsian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now South Korea, and it was found in a sandstone block that was part of the Tando Dam at Hwaseong City. Part of it was cut off after the block was extracted. Oops. 
Yeah, <laughs> that happens sometimes. The dam there was built in 1994, and then a public official first noticed the bones in 2008. Hmm. At least they noticed. Yeah, that's surprising. A lot of times they notice it right when they cut through it. Yeah, they're too busy building that dam. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> then it wasn't described until 2011 by Young Nam Lee and colleagues. The name, as you might guess, means Korea hornface. And the type species is Koreaceratops huesongensis, where it was found. The species name refers to that city, Huesong. And it was the first ceratopsian found in South Korea. They found 36 caudal vertebrae as well as partial hind limbs and ischia. No parts of the skull were found, though. Oh, that's so weird. Mm -hmm. You almost never see that. Usually it's only the skull that they find. And this time it's like everything but the skull. <laughs> that's unusual. Yeah, that is. So then you don't really know what the horns would have looked like, I guess. It also makes it really hard to compare to other ceratopsians. Mm -hmm. But it did have these tall neural spines on its tail. And that feature might have independently evolved and could have been an adaptation for swimming. And the tall, deep tail would have looked like a paddle. Oh, weird. Well, we saw that. Yeah, but I didn't think about it for swimming. That's a strange well, yeah. idea, ceratopsian swimming. That's true. So it might have been semi-aquatic. And oh, that's, that's odd. Yeah, it's based on this feature being seen in other animals that use their tail for swimming. Huh. It could have also had those neural spines for other things. It's not always just for swimming. Now, but it's fun to think about. <laughs> I suppose. Because if it had a skull even remotely like other ceratopsians, it's like the exact opposite of what you want for swimming. Well, okay. So they, there's a lot of basal ceratopsians that had similar tails, and some even had quill-like structures on the tail to make them seem larger than they were. So it could be an appearance thing. Hmm. And because of this, yeah, it could have been for display instead of having neck frills and horns like later ceratopsians. Though, actually, some later large ones like Triceratops may have had some quill structures. Interesting. You know, oldest story in the book. Need more fossils to know for sure why the tail was this way. Oh, but, you know, the broad tail could have also helped it to store fat in the harsh winter for Koreaceratops. Or maybe even fool a predator, making them attack the tail instead of the head. Or it could have been to help attract mates or show social status in a herd. So all kinds of possibilities. But I like the swimming theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody likes to think about dinosaurs swimming yeah i don't know something about it it's cute <laughs> so korea ceratops helps fill in gaps of ceratopsians that originated in asia and then first appeared in north america as you might have guessed it's a ceratopsian it was herbivorous and it's closely related to archaeoceratops and ceracinops so it probably had a parrot-like beak and then was about six feet or 1.8 meters long you can see an in-situ replica of Koreoceratops at the Korean National Science Museum in Daejeon, which we've been to. Yeah, and we took a video for our patrons there. So if you want to see it, you can check it out on our Patreon website. Yeah, take a look at that tail. Tell us if you think it was for swimming. <laughs> That's basically all it is. When you look at the slab of it, it does not stand out as a Ceratopsian because it's missing that skull. Mm -hmm. And actually, now that I think about it, that's probably the part that got chopped off accidentally when they were making the dam. Yeah. It's a bummer because that would have been quite a find, the whole skull and the rest of the body. Although if you had to find one half, I'm glad it was the tail because the tail sounds more unique. I suppose. Yeah, I guess being from the early Cretaceous and being a little bit smaller, it probably had a pretty unexciting head relative to other Ceratopsians. Maybe. We really don't know. And our fun fact of the day is that most dinosaurs couldn't pronate their lower arms. And I say most dinosaurs because I'm calling this a fact. <laughs> and pronate means the way their wrists are? Yes. 
but I, I don't want to say all dinosaurs couldn't pronate because there might have been one that I couldn't find <laughs> that could. But yeah, so the reason I said pronate their lower arms is a lot of times we talk about how they couldn't pronate their wrists or their hands, but really the part that does the pronating is more at the elbow. And so it's the whole lower arm that turns. So if you do this experiment with me where you have your hands face up and they're sticking out in front of you, your radius and your ulna in your lower arm are parallel to each other. And they go from the elbow to the hand. Then if you turn your palms face down, what happens is your radius actually rotates around your ulna. So it's twisted around the ulna from the elbow to the wrist. So it's, it basically moves at the elbow joint. So it's kind of a weird and sort of creepy thing that's going on inside your arm, the bones twisting around the other bone. But a lot of animals can't do that. Their radius isn't as flexible at the elbow, either because it's supporting weight, like in a sauropod, so then it, it can't really turn because it needs to be load-bearing, it needs to be solidly <laughs> structured in there. Or in the case of other like theropods and things, it's just not set up to turn. So they're just permanently kind of in a clapping position, sort of halfway in between up and down, just fa the palms facing each other, which is what you ultimately want if you're going to fly, because that's where you want your wings sort of positioned. So the reason that we, we think that they can't pronate is from looking at that elbow joint. It doesn't look like the radius of a mammal or other animals that have this flexible radius and flexible attachment point where it could move around. It looks more like a more solid attachment point. So we wouldn't expect it to be able to swing around the way ours can. And that's where the whole justification of this, you know, T-Rex didn't have hands pointed down in the sort of way people normally do their T-Rex arms. They would have pointed inwards towards one another. That's where all of that comes from. But it's still sort of evolving. There have been revisions to papers as recently as about four years ago talking about pronation. So we shouldn't be too critical of people when they draw the arms pronated <laughs> one way or the other. But it is pretty safe to say that their elbow wasn't flexible enough to pronate because most animals couldn't do it. So we're just making them a little bit too anthropomorphic when we do it. And if you're wondering, sauropods are pronated but they're permanently pronated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's sort of the exception. All these quadrupedal ones have to have their, their digits pointed forward, but they're just kind of permanently forward rather than permanently to the sides. So there you go. That's what pronation is all about. It's all in the elbow. Not the wrists. Nope. Or the hand. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino for exclusive content. Thanks again, and until next time.